Well, good morning. I believe Pastor Don and the Israel team have made their way back, so we're thankful for that. This morning, I'd like to look at a, a very little, very important, yet often overlooked book of the Old Testament called Habakkuk. Uh, it's very short. It's likely two of the crispier pages in your Bible. And uh, it's near the end of the Old Testament, so if you start at the beginning of the New Testament, work your way back, you're more likely to find it quickly there. I think this book is overlooked for a variety of reasons. One, it's short. Uh, most people don't think of the short ones as the important ones. Not a lot of votes for Second and Third John as somebody's favorite book of the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, uh, so let's be honest, it can be more difficult to understand and apply. And it's got a name that's difficult to pronounce. Is it Habakkuk? Is it Habakkuk? I don't know. Uh, I actually wanted to name our firstborn son Habakkuk, but my wife vetoed that. Uh, I think she didn't want him getting confused with the other Habakkuks in school, so crisis averted. <laughs> but this little book is essential for our understanding of the gospel. To give you a bit of context, Habakkuk lived near the end of Israel's time as a nation. So if you've been with us for a while here at South, Pastor Don just led us through the book of Joshua, which is the story of how God graciously gave the land of Israel to the people of Israel. It was a gift for them. But from the very beginning, there was always a stipulation attached. It was a gift given to them, but it was theirs to lose. And the Lord had forewarned them about this through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. If you'd like to follow along, we're going to flip around a bit, and I've got the passages up on the screen. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he said this, If you do not obey the Lord your God, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth. Like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess, and then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. So this was a warning given to the people of Israel before they even entered the land. This was Moses speaking to them on the plain right before they crossed the river like we read about in Joshua. So they had a forewarning, and Joshua reiterated this warning uh, near the end of his life, he said this, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, if you forsake the Lord and serve, so, uh, serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. So time and again, the people of Israel were told, I'm giving you this land as a gift, but it's yours to lose. Well, for those of you who are familiar with the history of Israel, it was a hard history full of disobedience. Almost from the moment Joshua died, there was repeated disobedience, and you can read about it in the books of Judges and Samuel and Kings. And so by the time the prophet Habakkuk came around, some 800 years later, uh, for 800 years the people had been disobeying the Lord. And they would have moments where they would return and repent, but in large part they were disobedient and served foreign gods. And by Habakkuk's time, he knew full well the extent of their disobedience. And so he opens his book with a complaint to the Lord. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. 
or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now, keep in mind, this is 800 years roughly after those warnings from Moses and Joshua. And for 800 years, the people exhibited a pattern of disobedience. But do you notice at the beginning of Habakkuk the mercy of God? It's not there on the surface. You can't see it just by reading this text. But when you consider that the people had been disobedient for 800 years, the Lord had been merciful to them. In fact, his mercy was so long and so patient was God with his people that Habakkuk the prophet actually mistook it for not caring. He thought God didn't care. He says, why do you tolerate wrong? That's what it seems to people when they see the injustice in the world, isn't it? Even today. This is the problem of evil. Why does God tolerate what is wrong? When in fact, he's simply being patient. But while the Lord's mercy is boundless in its reach and able to save anyone, it still has an expiration date. And so the Lord answers Habakkuk's complaint, and he says he was preparing to do exactly that. Look at the nations and watch, the Lord says. Be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places, not their own. In other words, I'm raising up the Babylonians and just as sure as you came in and took this land from the, land, uh, from the Canaanites, so I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to come and take your land from you. Well, this doesn't sit too well with Habakkuk. Uh, if he had a complaint to start with that there was injustice in the land, it's an even bigger problem now because they're about to be destroyed by a foreign nation, even though that's exactly what the Lord had promised that he would do. And so he issues another complaint before the Lord, verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Maybe he was just kidding in, at the beginning of chapter 1. He said, why do you tolerate wrong? Oh no, he knows that the Lord cannot tolerate wrong. But why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? In other words, how are you going to judge us for our sin, but not them when they're worse than we are? You see that logic? But the Lord has an answer for this as well. In essence, he says, don't worry about them. I know who they are, and they won't escape justice either. Just wait for it. So if you'd like to follow along, our text is going to be in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, beginning in verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. I want us to focus this morning on just verse 4. 
Specifically, the last phrase, the righteous will live by his faith. Now, some of you in your translation has the word faithfulness. Uh, There's overlap in the meaning of those two words, faith and faithfulness, and we'll talk about that more as we go along. But this is a key verse in our understanding of Christianity. Uh, It's tucked away here in the middle of Habakkuk, but it's actually very prominent in how the apostles understood God's work of salvation. So we want to ask three questions this morning. Who are the righteous? What is their faith like? And how do they live by it? So first, who are the righteous? Well, right here in this verse, verse 4, there's a contrast going on. Notice it says, but the righteous shall live by faith. So in other words, the righteous are contrasted with whoever he's talking about before. It talks about those who are puffed up, whose desires are not upright. Now, for Habakkuk, this was very obvious who the unrighteous were. Uh, If it wasn't Israel, although he recognized their unrighteousness, it was most certainly Babylon. Babylon was a violent people. Their conquering was not done innocently. It wasn't done diplomatically. It was ruthless. They were greedy. As they went throughout conquering all of their peoples, they plundered their possessions to establish their own financial security. They were sexually immoral. They committed rape among the people that they had conquered. And they were arrogant. They boasted about their ruthlessness. They boasted about their strength and their power. So that was them and them, the nation of Babylon. But it's easy to look at the extremes and see sin, isn't it? It's easy to want God's justice done on those who are the worst sinners. But think about your own life today. Are you violent? Maybe not in the sense of killing people, but have you ever been angry without cause? Have you ever held a grudge against somebody that wasn't just? Guilty. Are you greedy? Maybe not in the sense of stealing someone else's possessions, but are you content with what you have? After all, greed is not a material problem, it's a heart problem. Guilty. Are you sexually immoral? Maybe not in the sense of going as far as committing rape, but do you have a problem with lust? How's the battle with pornography going? Guilty. Are you arrogant? Maybe not constantly touting your accomplishments or outwardly glorifying yourself, but are you self-centered? Do you ever wallow in self-pity, which is a form of pride, of course? Or do you simply ignore God? That's perhaps the height of arrogance, to not even recognize the God who created you and gave you life. And of course, we are all guilty of these things. The Apostle Paul came to this conclusion in Romans chapter 3. He said, in fact, there is none who is right, no one who is righteous, not even one. Nobody in Habakkuk's time, nobody in our time. So if we're all among the unrighteous, then who's he talking about? Who is righteous? We need to feel that tension. When we first read this verse, we ought not read ourselves in the place of the righteous. We ought to read ourselves in the place of those who are puffed up, whose desires are not upright within us. But realizing that we are unrighteous, we need to learn what it means to be righteous. What does it mean uh, to be righteous? 
Well, fundamentally, it's people that God approves. This is a big question, both in the Bible and for our own lives as well. What does God think? It's easy for us to compare ourselves with one another, isn't it? We say, well, I'm not really that bad. Look at the person next to me. I know that guy. He's got a lot of problems. It's much more difficult to consider, what does God think? What is his standard for righteousness? People whose desires are totally upright. This means people live exactly the way God created them to live. It requires perfection, is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. But if you have to be perfect, then who could qualify? Who meets these uh, requirements? Who could God ever approve of? Well, this is where Jesus comes in. God approves of Jesus. Some 600 years after Habakkuk's time, Jesus showed up on the scene. And when he came to be baptized, God spoke from heaven with an audible voice in Matthew chapter 3, And said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. There's a whole crowd of people there that testified that that's what they heard. Later on, he was with three of his disciples and they went up on a mountain. And those three heard the same voice, God speaking from heaven, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. But then finally... Jesus was subject to trial. The human authorities rendered their own verdict about Jesus. Even though they couldn't find any unrighteousness in him, they they deemed him guilty and worthy of execution. And that's exactly what they did. But we came to know what God thought of Jesus because in the ultimate dramatic reversed sentence, God raised him from the dead. That's what God thinks of Jesus. Death could not hold him. And so God raised him from the dead. But what's the point of all this? Okay, God approves of Jesus alone, and he doesn't approve of any of us. Where does that leave us? How does that do us any good? If, if Jesus is the only one who's righteous, how can we be made righteous? And the answer is, by faith. So what does faith look like? Well, fundamentally, I think it is taking God at his word. The Hebrew root here is aman, which is where we get the English word amen. That's why I've got it up on the screen there. Amen means I believe, or it's true, it's certain, it's trustworthy. That's why we say amen when we finish praying. When we finish praying, hopefully we've spoken to God in view of his character, in view of his promise to do what he says he will do, to carry out his will. And at the end we say, I believe, it's certain. So whenever we do that thing in church where the pastor gets up and says, and all God's people say, amen, y'all are saying, I believe. It's true what's being said. And that's exactly what's being said here in Habakkuk is it's true. It's trustworthy. The word here in chapter 2, verse 4 is the same in chapter 1, verse 5, if you want to look back at that verse. When he says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, I'm going to do something in your days that you would not amen if you were told. You would not believe this even if you were told. So there's something about taking God at his word that is at the heart of faith. So what was God's word to Habakkuk? Well, it's very obvious. Judgment is coming. First to Israel and then to Babylon. 
So if you look at chapter 1, judgment is coming to Israel by the hand of Babylon. And throughout the rest of chapter 2, it details what judgment on Babylon is going to look like in the end. But as we consider God's word to us today, is it really so different? Think about what Pastor Doug shared last week for those of you who were here. The wrath of God is coming. He is patient with us. He's merciful towards us, but he's not indifferent to our sin and the injustice that goes on in the world. This isn't fiction. This isn't the work of preachers who are trying to gather a following by manipulating an audience. This is the truth. This isn't just for the worst of people. God's judgment is coming on all mankind because of our sin. In Revelation, Babylon who's talked about in Habakkuk here, actually becomes symbolic of the entire world order that is opposed to God. All that is unrighteous is symbolized in Babylon. And in Revelation 16, 19, it says, God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Do you take God at his word on that? Do you actually believe that that's what's true? But of course, there's more that God was telling Habakkuk. It wasn't just that judgment was coming, but the righteous will live by faith. In fact, the way the Apostle Paul interprets Habakkuk for us, it's actually faith in Jesus that makes a person righteous. If Jesus is the only righteous one, the only one who's approved by God, then all who have faith in Jesus, who take God at his word about Jesus, will be counted righteous as well. Now that's certainly more than what Habakkuk would have known in his day, but it's what he longed for. It's what he hoped in. So what has God said to us about Jesus? He's God's beloved son. We've already seen that in the book of Matthew. He's also called the Christ, That means he's the appointed king. He's the one who's going to be in charge in the end. We don't see it at present, but it's true. It's going to come. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But God has also said that Jesus is the only one qualified to pay the penalty for unrighteous sinners like you and me. When he died on the cross, he died a death we deserve so that we could live a life that only he deserved. And because he rose from the dead, everyone who believes in him will one day rise from the dead too. A pastor friend in Virginia relayed this story on Facebook this week. He said an elderly sister from our church who deeply loved Jesus was on her deathbed. And when a visiting church member asked her, how are you feeling? The woman opened her eyes She smiled and she said, I'm almost well. That's taking God at his word. I wonder how many of us in this room today have that kind of deathbed faith, that trust in God, taking God at his word, that even though we die, yet we will live. But taking God at his word is not the only aspect of faith in Habakkuk. There's also an element of waiting. We wait patiently for its fulfillment. Habakkuk longed for justice to be done in Israel and in Babylon, but he also longed for mercy. The passage that Rhonda read a minute ago, look with me at chapter 3, verse 2. 
says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. He longs for justice, but he longs for mercy as well. And isn't that the same as us? If we've put our faith in Jesus, don't we long for the same thing? If you've ever turned on the news and been sickened by the injustice you see happening in the world, and you can identify with Habakkuk. He's seeing injustice all around him, and he didn't even have 24-hour cable news. But no one, not even an atheist, wants this world to go on forever the way it is. Everybody is longing for some kind of change, for justice to be done. And so do we. But if we take God at his word and we understand what the standard of justice is, then we will also long for mercy. Now, we've already received mercy in a sense. If we've put our faith in Jesus, then we're already saved. But we long for the ultimate show of mercy, the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection, uh, the life that Jesus has promised us. And while Jesus has already defeated Satan's sin and death, we still long for the ultimate fulfillment of that victory. Which is why in Hebrews it says, at present we don't yet see everything subject to him. But we know that one day everything will be subjected to Jesus. And in the meantime, we take God at his word, and so we live accordingly in the meantime. Which brings us to our final question. How do the righteous live by faith? Well, the first thing we'll see is that the righteous are saved from divine wrath. Notice how important, I said this, this verse is important for how we understand the gospel. Notice how Paul uses it as a thesis statement in the book of Romans in chapter 1. This really sets the tone for the entire book of Romans. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God, not from ourselves, is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So in this sense, the righteous live by escaping the wrath of God. We are saved from the punishment we deserve because of faith. That's how we live. We don't die. The wrath of God in Revelation is called the second death. That is what those who have faith are saved from. So again, we have to ask ourselves the question, do you take God at his word that judgment is coming? Do you take God at his word that you are, in and of yourself, unrighteous and worthy of that wrath? But do you also take God at his word that Jesus is your only hope of salvation? Because only then can you be saved. As Paul would go on to say, faith is what changes us from being an enemy of God to being at his table as a friend. But we not only live by not dying, our ongoing lives are characterized by faithful obedience. In this life, we are faithful. And this is where I think the translators use those words interchangeably. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faithfulness. 
Because again, in, uh, at a very strategic point in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 10, right before the famous Hall of Faith chapter of chapter 11, this verse shows up again. The righteous will live by faith. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, do not throw away your confidence, another synonym. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Taking God at his word means we believe that Jesus is already king. And that is reflected in our lives as we submit in faithful obedience to his word. If your life doesn't look like that, if you don't really know what the Bible says, if you don't really care what the Bible says, then you might not have the faith you think you do. But if you can look at your life and say, you know what, I don't do it perfectly, but I persevere. So we need to persevere in faithful obedience because not only are we going to be subject to outside persecution, which is the context of Hebrews, but we're going to fail. We're going to sin. We're going to struggle in this life. That's why we long for justice and mercy to come in its fulfillment. But persevering means we get back on the horse. We failed yesterday, we confess, we repent, and we're moving on today. We're persevering because we know that Jesus is king and one day we'll be free from this struggle with sin. We won't struggle to obey Jesus as our king any longer. Perseverance in faithful obedience is a necessary requirement of faith. And by the way, this is every bit as much good news as the fact that we're escaping hell, escaping divine wrath. If it's not good news to us that we can leave our old life of sin and live a life of faithful obedience empowered by the Spirit, then we don't really understand Christianity. It's no good to us to, to want that escape and not want the full life of faithful obedience that God calls us to. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk who lived near the end of the Middle Ages in Germany, and he attributed his conversion to Christianity to this verse, the righteous will live by faith. He said this, I hated that word, the righteousness of God, because I had been taught to me, I've been taught that it means the way the righteous God punishes unrighteous sinners. Even though I lived as a monk, I knew I was a sinner before God with a most disturbed conscience. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, yet I kept yearning to know what this phrase meant. Finally, by the mercy of God, as I meditated on that word day and night, I paid attention to the context of the words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift from God, namely faith. It's the way in which the righteous God makes us righteous. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates, whereas before the phrase, the righteousness of God, had filled me with hate, 
Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and filled with love. I hope that this verse has become inexpressibly sweet to you today as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. As we consider ourselves and what you think of us apart from Christ, we can't help but have a deep sense of our unrighteousness and unworthiness before you. And yet, God, we thank you for the gospel. The gospel that teaches us that we cannot earn our salvation, we cannot merit righteousness, but it's purely by your grace that you save us. I pray for anyone here this morning who's still trusting in their own righteousness. May they have a sense about themselves the way Babylon was, trusting in their own strength. May we not be characterized by that. May we be people who trust in Christ alone and his righteousness that's imputed to us by faith alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.